I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we're back. And today, I wanted to talk with you guys about why the EU is launching an investigation into China's EV electric vehicle subsidies. Scott, do you want to lead off with this one? Sure. Yeah. Well, the, the, the controversy surrounds Chinese electric vehicles, battery electric powered vehicles, exports from China to the European Union. Uh, the European Union has a new European communities, as they're known in the trade world, has a 10% tariff on automobiles, but these are imported from China to the European Union. They are low-cost, low-priced electric vehicles, which is uh, concerning because of the high cost of production in Germany, in a nutshell, and the concern about how China gets these vehicles so economically produced, and whether or not there are illegal or illegitimate subsidies. It's a big bilateral trade issue for them in automobiles. It's important to remember that Europe actually exports almost a million cars a year to China. Last time I was in Beijing, all the uh, high uh, government officials and uh, corporate executives, the car of choice was an Audi sedan. I think an Audi A8 or A6. Uh, they, they were all over the place. And that was, that, was, that was luxury in China. And they were direct imports from Germany. So uh, it's a pretty, pretty big item in their trade uh, with China. But yet they are uh, concerned about how these electric vehicles at, at low prices are uh, distorting the market. Now, for me, I, I look at this, and in some ways, I remember that line from Animal House where uh, Otter turns and says, hey, they can't abuse our pledges. Only we can abuse our pledges. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the situation, except here the pledges are the, are the, they're the taxpayers. The wisdom of Otter endures. Uh, yes. That, that, so it's an Otter-endorsed uh, problem that the government has created for itself, in my view. Because if you, if you play this out as a sitcom, you have the European government say, hey, everybody, you should buy electric vehicles. And then the, the, the consumer in, in Europe says, uh, no, thanks. I like my normal car. I like my in internal combustion car. And the, government, the European government says, well, I know. Let's subsidize the EVs. And so there are lots of subsidies for car manufacturing, for component building, including batteries, uh, for charging station and infrastructure, the direct subsidies to consumers like we have here. And so the, the European consumer car buyer is saying, well, maybe this is okay. And meanwhile, China walks up and says, hey, hi there. We've been doing your dirty work in the auto business with, uh, with mining materials and processing them and getting you parts and equipment uh, for about 20 years. But we learned how to build cars ourselves. And now we want to sell you our Chinese uh, electric vehicles. And the European consumer goes, well, that's interesting. And the European government responds with, you're cheating. <laughs> okay, so how'd they get themselves into this situation? Well, that's what the subsidies business does. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the GATT and WTO had have rules against subsidies, because these things get to be real messes. So how does this sitcom end? Well, when somebody runs out of somebody else's money, I, I don't know any other time. But it's a, it's a high-stakes game, and uh, it will take a lot of finesse to, because of the two-way trade, a lot of finesse to uh, resolve. Over to uh, Bill. Well, first, I just want to gloat for a moment. I'm 
I'm talking to you from uh, Banff, Alberta. Oh. And looking out my window, I've got a much better view than anybody listening. I bet. One of the most beautiful places on earth. Congratulations. It's really Well, it is indeed. Spectacular. There's a river and beautiful mountains, some with snow, some without. Uh, And there's a golf course down there with nobody on it, uh, which is tempting. Anyway, getting back to the subject at hand, I have some sympathy for the for the Europeans on this because they are about to they're, they're about to get swamped with Chinese EVs and there's a price issue. There was a study done that showed I think there are five or six Chinese uh, EVs priced at $15,000 or below. There are no western EVs currently priced at less than $20,000. So there's pretty clearly a price gap, gap here. Um, and the Chinese are doing here what they did with steel, what they did with aluminum, what they're about to do with semiconductor chips, and what down the road they're going to do with aircraft. Um, when you have what is, when you have an economy where credit is allocated by the state uh, and not by the market, you always get overcapacity and you always get overproduction. And the overproduction always finds its way, its way into other countries uh, because they have to clear the market somehow and they don't want acres of EVs sitting around, you know, unbought, uh, rusting. And so this is a, this is an old playbook. And, uh, you know, the Europeans should have seen it coming because it's not a new thing. They're going to be uh, underpriced. Uh, some of the EVs that are coming, although keep in mind, will be European because Volkswagen and uh, Mercedes-Benz and several others uh, have production facilities in uh, China. And some of those will result in exports coming back. But overall, these are going to be uh, Chinese, and the Europeans are resorting to the same tool the U.S. has resorted to on steel, which is the trade laws that Scott mentioned. You know, these are uh, these items are subsidized. They're probably dumped, and there are rules against that. There are EU rules against it. There are WTO rules against it. And I don't blame the Europeans one bit for trying to uh, enforce the law. The problem they've got is what everybody's got uh, on these things, which is it takes a long time. In their case, I think less than a year, but, you know, close to a year to complete the investigation. And then, you know, then we'll see what happens and what kinds of duties are assessed. And hopefully, you know, the European companies will probably almost certainly be, still be in business then. But, you know, there's going to be some a gap when there's there's no relief for them. So we'll see how that plays out. But I'd also comment that one of the ironies of this is that this is not happening in, in the U.S. yet. And the reason it's not happening in the U.S. is, ironically, the Trump tariffs, because the EU tariff on cars is 10 percent. The U.S. normal tariff on cars is two and a half percent. So we have a fairly open market on cars, and we take a lot of your imports, as you know, from from Japan and from Europe. Uh, But however, thanks to Trump, the tariff on Chinese cars is 27 and a half percent. That's a big hump to get over. You know, even if you have a $15,000 car, 27.5% is not peanuts. There are also regulatory issues. So I think we may face this problem down the road, but we don't face it right now. One implication of that, of course, is, you know, if you put two and two together, you can see why it's not likely that the China tariffs are going to change anytime soon. Because if the president were to remove all of them, or particularly these ones, then he'd have a huge problem, an even bigger problem with the auto workers than he has now. It's a great illustration of how, for all the people who campaigned against the Trump tariffs, once the campaign was over and you had to govern, the logical thing was to leave the tariffs in place because of precisely this kind of circumstance. So it's, it's tough business out there. 
Guys, so what are some of these the other implications for the U.S. market? Well, to my mind, we the government is trying to do two things at once, and they counteract each other. They're trying to incentivize the conversion of the fleet to electric vehicles, which means a lot more than the 2 or 3% of total vehicles sold in a year. That's new and used cars to some significantly higher number than that. And they're trying to do it with products produced domestically. And it will be very difficult to have it both ways. And I think that's, that's what the Europeans are finding with the subsidies. So what you have is goals in conflict. And that's why I made the comment I did about running out of other people's money. It gets really expensive to subsidize. You're subsidizing both sides of the equation to accomplish both those goals at the same time. Well, the only amendment I'd make is I think we're actually pursuing three contradictory policies. We're trying to accelerate the transition to green. We're trying to reshore the economy, particularly in manufacturing. And we're trying to build up our uh, industrial base to better compete against China. And these policies are not entirely compatible if you solar panels being a classic case. You know, we are enforcing trade laws uh, legitimately, I believe, against dumped and subsidized solar panels from China and or solar panels that are made from forced labor, which is against uh, U.S. law. The consequence of that, though, is we are slowing down the transition to solar. So the policies are, are not compatible and there are trade-offs. In this particular case, you have to add in the very large subsidies that uh, U.S. is awarding, people that are uh, production and consumption subsidies, tax credits for buying the cars, which are heavily oriented toward cars that have substantial American content, and cars that don't have any Chinese content, which is another kind of contradictory policy, because if you're going to prohibit Chinese minerals, and that's a prohibition that goes into effect next year, we don't, at the present time, have adequate uh, alternative sources. No, we will, because the market adjusts to create those sources and the economics changes. But right now we don't, but the condition or the, the requirement goes into effect really before we're ready. So that's going to slow down the transition to EVs, at least to EV production in the United States. But long term, I think what we what the Biden administration has done through the Inflation Reduction Act is give a big boost to the production of EVs in the United States. And ultimately, uh, if it works, you know, they'll capture a substantial share of the market. Now, at the same time, you know, no good deed goes unpunished or there's always other things that happen, collateral damage. One of the issues right now behind the auto workers strike is their concern that making electric vehicles takes fewer jobs. There are fewer parts and components. You don't have transmission. You've got one giant thing, a battery, and then you've got a shell, basically. And it looks like that means fewer parts and components manufacturing. Uh, workers, it means uh, fewer uh, assembly workers. They're they're worried about that. And of course, and I, I wrote my column, I think last week about this, you know, the union is focused on protecting current jobs more than it is on growing the union, which is what they really ought to be focused on. So they're trying to hold on to jobs that are going to disappear because of the change of technology. And I mean, the one point I've made, this is not an evil plot by the auto companies to put the workers out of business. You know, this is a response to changing political and economic circumstances. Consumers want EVs. The government wants EVs. Countries all over the world are going to build EVs. Uh, and in a way, they're responding to consumer demand. Uh, the downside of that is the workers have to deal with the reality of that uh, and figure out how to adjust their situation, 
in order to take advantage of that, what I hope the UAW is doing is making sure that all those American uh, battery plants that are about, or foreign battery plants for that matter, that are about to be uh, built in the United States, that they all have union workers. And that that doesn't get lost in the demand to pay the existing big three auto workers more money. Well, they should be worried, shouldn't they? Yes. I mean, Bill's exactly right about product composition. Last I checked, and it's been a year or so, but a year ago, there are one third the number of parts in an electric vehicle as there are in an internal combustion vehicle. It's like 50,000 to 150,000 total parts and components. So it's a much simpler vehicle to build, which means you may need much, many fewer steps in the assembly process, which means fewer people, ultimately, given assembly technology. So that's an issue. And uh, that's, that's one of the, as Bill rightly points out, one of the underlying concerns. What you have to look at when you talk about substantial conversion of the fleet, though, is today, the, the median transaction price for a new vehicle in the United States, this is, a, this is a consumer purchase of a car or light truck. So it doesn't include fleets, doesn't include over-the-road trucks, just the typical auto transaction at the dealership. $50,000 is the median Price. Which is astonishing. No American company, except the, maybe maybe one Chevrolet product, one General Motors product, uh, electric vehicle, uh, would be under the median price. So th- there's a huge market for low-cost vehicles in the United States that is not being met by anybody's electric vehicle. China's are priced out because of the tariff. And there are very few U.S. manufacturers who can actually make an electric vehicle uh, and and market it for under fifty thousand dollars. So it's a you know when you talk about converting the fleet and the, the so called energy transition, that's the fact. So and somebody you know was one of those things. Physics don't change, politics do. <laughs> that's what that's where we are in the well, business. Well, let me ask you guys. You know, it doesn't seem like Chinese cars are going to be on our shores anytime soon. But let's just say they lower the tariffs and and something comes through. Do you see Americans actually driving Chinese cars? Oh, certainly. Yeah, look, look at uh, look at the uh, well. You can look at the Yugo, which was kind of a failure. That was the greatest. Uh, what did Dan Aykroyd call it? Super creation, creation technology uh, from the nineteen sixties. Uh, but look, that, Toyota started with and, and and Nissan in the U.S. It was called Datsun. Started in with very you know inadequate, low cost vehicles that didn't have a great reputation. Toyota has the highest. Uh, reputation for reliability of any vehicle in America right now. And and so uh, that's less than 50 years. That's a very good point. The question that I think is unanswered is that the Japanese uh, did that by doing a very smart thing in the late 80s when they were under pressure from, from the Congress and, and primarily. Uh, and that is they built manufacturing facilities in the United States and they became constituents. And so now you've got thousands of Honda, Toyota uh, workers, uh, in particular, uh, also I think uh, Hyundai workers as well, uh, who are voters and constituents in Ohio and uh, Indiana and other places. So they become part of the American political system, and that's helped insulate them from, uh, along with the large market share they have. And but in the process of becoming. Uh, American manufacturers, they increase their American content percentage significantly. We've talked about this before. There was a couple of years where the Camry had the most American co- uh, content of any car that was being sold here. Will the Chinese do the same thing? Will they start to build manufacturing facilities here? And will we let them? 
Uh, you know, Japan was a different story. Japan came from humble origins. You know, a friend of mine in high school had a, a Honda 600, which was Honda's first car. They made a lot of motorcycles and a lot of engines. It was a tiny, tiny little vehicle, 600cc engine, so six tenths of a liter and no power, but it was, uh, Honda became a powerhouse and uh, has many uh, best-selling models in the U.S. now. People say they support Buy America. Poll data shows that they support Buy America, but they don't buy America. You know, they, they shop at places where there's lots of imports. Now, when it comes to cars, it's apparent that there are many factors that go into a decision to purchase a car. A big one is price. And it's not, you know, if the Chinese car is $300 less than the American car, you know, maybe the American car has the edge because it's American. But if there's a five or $10,000 gap, that's different, you know. And if you're talking about a median price of 50 k as Scott just said, you know, if the Chinese can come in at substantially below that, I think that's going to attract a lot of people. Well, this is an interesting discussion, and I'm sure we'll be continuing to talk about it in days to come. I want to switch gears to the GSP. Congress has been holding hearings to bring back the GSP. First, I want to ask you guys, can you give us a refresher course on exactly what the GSP is? Uh, sure. Uh, th this is uh, a program that next year turns 50. So it was created in the Trade Act of 1974. GSP stands for the Generalized System of Preferences. Uh, and it was intended to help developing countries integrate or improve themselves economically by exporting to the United States uh, to, to this big consumer market. And uh, there have been a large number of low and middle income countries who have had products that have benefited. These are generally products that aren't made in the United States and uh, don't have other sources of supply. So it's been a program that has been around for a while. I guess uh, Keith Jackson may have called it the granddaddy of them all <laughs> when it comes to preference programs. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's been around. It, now, it, it, authority expires uh, occasionally. And it did about three years ago and hasn't been renewed. Why wasn't it reauthorized in 2020? Mainly because the politics got in the way. Shocking. Uh, and it's part of the, our our current situation where very few bills move all the way to the president's desk and get signed. And so when a bill that is that needs to pass uh, or should pass or has very few opponents in me, indeed, which GSP has, has always been one of those programs that was broadly supported by both parties, didn't have a lot of commercial opponents because of the way you qualify the, for those preferences. Uh, and so it's, it was... Everybody seemed to like it, except because it was well-liked, everyone wanted to basically take it hostage and attach their provision, which was more controversial to it. So the politics has dragged it down every time that, that they've tried to, to move it. Bill would have chapter and verse because he, he's followed this for decades now. Well, the politics of it has always been interesting because there's been bipartisan support for it, but for very different reasons. For Democrats, uh, it's a development program. You know, it's a way to help poor countries grow their economies. And it's not its not an aid program. We don't give them money, but we make it easier for them to ship stuff to the United States. That helps them grow. These are private companies often, uh, most of the time. Uh, it helps uh, workers, poor workers in poor countries. For the Republicans, it's a tax cut because it's zero tariffs. And that means lower prices. And that's good for consumers. So the two sides for a long time, 50 years, as Scott said, have gotten together to uh, try to, uh, you know, to put this thing through and then to support it. It tends to expire partly, I think, because while everybody's for it, you know, it's number 12 on their list of priorities. 
So when you get to the end of the year and you've got time to do two or three things, this often does not make the cut. It also uh, has lost out on occasion. And uh, somebody, there was a hearing on this Wednesday the 20th, and one of the congressmen commented that, you know, one of the other problems it, it, it has is that people try to attach other things to it, including the renewal of trade adjustment assistance. And sometimes the other things are more controversial than GSP, but they drag the whole, you know, they drag the whole thing down with it. So that's a problem. And this time around, there actually is some substantive difference uh, between the parties over how to renew it. I don't think there are big differences, but they seem to be getting worse rather than better. The Democrats want to attach some conditions, eligibility requirements uh, for GSP, uh, harder, tougher uh, labor uh, uh, standards and environmental standards and uh, a tougher approach to uh, shipping things in that, that affect industries that exist here. I mean, a lot of what comes in is not grown or made here. And so there's not a domestic constituency, but that's not true of everything. And so things that where there is a domestic constituency, they tend to show up and say, you know, we need to do things to narrow the program basically so that my guys don't take a hit. And you know, it, it becomes a problem for the developing countries because if you layer on, I did a rant coming on here, I'm sorry, but if you layer on social objectives, you know, you have to do things for your workers, you have to promote sustainability, you have to do things in an environmentally sensitive way, you make the developing countries who often don't have the infrastructure to do that or are not in a political position to do that, basically you end up with them not being able to take advantage of the program. And so... There's a trade-off here that Congress doesn't want to address that I think holds things up. You know, if your objective, if it's a development program, your objective ought to be to design a program that actually promotes development. It ought to be a program that lets in more imports, helps more poor people, helps more economies grow. You can't do that without some industries here taking a hit. Now, if you're determined to do it in a way where everybody in the United States is held harmless, you end up with a very small program that doesn't benefit anybody. And so that's the problem the Democrats have. You know, why you say you want to help all these countries, but you're imposing requirements that prevents them from taking advantage of it. Republicans, I think, want it. They want the fact that it's a tax cut. They are the ones generally that have opposed attaching additional things to it, either germane things like I was just talking about or non-germane things like other trade provisions. Yes. Well, look, I think it's great that they held a hearing, but what they really need is a trade bill. All right, this is the, the how, how GSP gets passed, how got, it got created in the first place was part of a huge trade deal. The Trade Act of 1974 was, you know, probably 700 pages. May not have been that long. It'd be 700 pages today if we did it. But uh, but it was a it was a complete trade bill. It had fast track authority. It had all kinds of institutional changes. It had negotiating objectives. We haven't done one of those in a long time. I think it probably maybe 2015. The last I can recall, there was a good customs bill that I think. Brown and Portman sponsored, co-sponsored in the Senate that got some things done. But that's how you get the, a program like GSP uh, authorized when you really get down to it, is you've got to do a broader trade title. And the Ways and Means Chairman is perfectly capable of doing that. Uh, he's just got to he's just got to move the bill. Uh, but uh, there, there are some things, if they want to use uh, GSP as a way to te- cut taxes, we could do what Canada does and, and have an automatic system for all of the things that we import 
where there's no American production, no U, no domestic competitor, and yet we charge tariffs on it. So uh, tariffs on intermediate goods are one of the silliest things that are imaginable. And because we politicize the miscellaneous tariffs bill, where we used to take care of these things, we can't get it done. But So there are ways to do it. Canada began this program of, if you have an import that's used as a component in your production, and there is no domestic competitor, you can get the tariffs zeroed out on a temporary basis. They started doing that back at the Harper administration. And it's totally non-controversial and totally smart way to offset inflation and cut taxes. There are things that the Congress can do and ought to do on a, on a larger matter that by including the, those bigger programs in GSP, they might be able to actually get something done. So that would be my advice. The other thing is, I think that among all the, the people who testified at the hearing yesterday, the one I found that I, I thought made a lot of sense was Roy Hausman of the United Steelworkers. He said that, you know, GSP is, you know, is not a modern program. It's not made for today's economy and it needs a more sophisticated approach. And frankly, I think he's exactly right. And it's if you can't move the bill, think it through to something you can move that would benefit more voters and, and do more for the U.S. economy. Yeah, but I don't recall him having any suggestions about how to well, do we didn't. That. No, but he did. These opening points were, yeah, I actually totally agreed with him. When do, when do we get a trade bill? There's been some modest talk about one. I mean, the the time would be end of the year. I mean, these things tend to be end of session, end of Congress things. I think there's talk amongst Republicans. We've talked a little bit about this in the past. I think uh, in the House, I see three groups of Republicans, people who would like to have a trade bill because they think it's a good idea, because they think it's good policy. They tend to represent uh, farm areas. Market access is really important for farmers. If you listen to Adrian Smith from Nebraska, the chair of the trade subcommittee, I think he'd go on at, at length fight intelligently about uh, why uh, you know a trade bill that focuses on market access would be a good idea. I think there's another group of Republicans who see this as a um, an area where they can attack Biden for missing opportunities and, and missing export opportunities and you know just not doing things that, that won't hurt anybody. It's like Scott said, there's a number of things you could do that won't have a negative economic impact here that we're not doing. And I think that group of Republicans is anxious to rule on this, you know, if only to tweak the president and try to point out the, that he's missing the boat in some areas. Uh, that doesn't acknowledge that there's a third group of Republicans, which are the MAGA Republicans, you know, the Trump people who tend to favor higher tariffs, and, and as Trump does, and pulling back from the world. I don't know the relative strength of the groups. I also think it doesn't matter. The first two groups, the people who want to do something, are well represented on the Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee that would do anything. And so I would predict more hearings uh, and maybe see even some action on a bill end of the year. The history of trade bills is that the big trade bills is they don't happen without active support and involvement from the administration. And I just don't see that happening right now. They're, they don't seem uh, the time to do one would, would have been last year when. The existing one was expiring, in, well, two years ago, June of 2021. They missed the opportunity, and they've shown no interest since then of picking up on it. So I think you'll see you know, sound, maybe a little fury, but uh, no action. Well, look, trade bills tend to come from the center, and uh, Bill didn't mention the Senate, which will have a role in this. And Maybe some enterprising reporter who listens to the trade guys could pose that question to Chairman Wyden. When are you going to move a trade bill? I'd like to know the answer. You heard it here first. Hey, you guys have laid down a marker. So let's hope some of our reporter friends are listening and uh, they want to jump in. Um, guys, thanks as always. Great insights. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.
to our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.